Throughout the 1980s, a strange phenomenon was sweeping North America. They were in a panic. And like people in a panic, they want solutions. Allegations of underground satanic cults torturing and terrorizing children. The thing is, there were no satanic cults preying on children. And nearly 30 years later, the people touched by it all are still picking up the pieces. This isn't a work of fiction. This is a work of history. Satanic Panic, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Nala Ayed. Welcome to the third of the 2022 CBC Massey Lectures, Laughing with the Trickster on Sex, Death and Accordions by the acclaimed Cree writer Thompson Highway. Indigenous mythologies, says Thompson Highway, provide unique, timeless solutions to our modern problems. Within the endless circle of life, the earth is a garden of joy unlimited. And the reason for existence is to have a blast, to laugh ourselves silly. At the center of that in Indigenous mythology is the figure of the trickster, zany, ridiculous, and wise. A bit of a trickster himself. In his Massey lectures, Thompson Highway leads us on an exhilarating exploration of five themes at the center of the human condition. Language, creation, sex and gender, humor, and death. Thompson Highway is a Cree author, playwright, and musician. He wrote the plays The Res Sisters and Dry Lips Autumn Moved to Kappa's Casing, the best-selling novel Kiss of the Fur Queen, as well as children's books and a memoir, Permanent Astonishment. This year was the first since the pandemic that we were able to record the Massey Lectures on tour to Fredericton, St. John's, Saskatoon, Vancouver, and Toronto. This is the third in the series, recorded at the Broadway Theatre in Saskatoon, and it's titled On Humor. Here's Thompson Highway. Anyway, so... I was just saying in Korea that I'm not, I'm not allowed to be silly because I'm being recorded on the video. <laughs> and uh, I, am, I am the world's silliest man, so this is going to be very hard for me. Anyway, away we go. Lecture three on humor. Recite some words in English in front of a mirror and see what happens. First to your lips, then to your eyes, then to your cheeks, then to your nostrils, then to your face, and last to your shoulders. I'll bet you anything that not much happens. <laughs> nothing accelerates, nothing decelerates. Not your breathing, not your pulse. All hang listless, as expressionless as lint on an old man's coat. <laughs> there is not much humor built into the sentences, so why laugh lustily? Why even chortle? Now say some Cree words in front of that mirror and see what happens. First to your lips, then to your eyes, then to your cheeks, then to your nostrils, then to your face, and then to your shoulders. You don't even have to look in the mirror to detect the adjustments that will transpire. Choo-choo. And leave it there. 
Don't move a muscle in that mirror. The nickname of a man in old brochet, my village, it means nipples. Say it again. And freeze. See how your lips are already pointing in a manner slightly unseemly? <laughs> Those speaking English would call it naughty, but we don't. To us, everything in life is naughty, comical, and mutsigan, which means fun. At the sound of the syllables in the English language, nipples. The angel with the sword is unsheathing his fearful weapon. You're cringing already. But see how your eyes are already giving off a tricksterous twinkle? As if you are about to pinch choo-choos. And your cheek muscles have already tightened to the point where, like a band of elastic, they might well snap with a cartoon twang. Your nostrils, have narrowed to the point where your nose has lengthened by a tenth of an inch. Your face is just one muscle twitch away from exploding with a gush that announces laughter. Your shoulders are shaking, the bottom of your throat already revving up for a major event orgasmic in nature, life-changing in thrust. Now try these words in that mirror to your lover, or at the very least, to your best friend and see how the aforementioned parts of your face and your body react to the syllables and even to the letters. Mumus, which means bogeyman. <laughs> then this one, posis, which is our word for pussycat. Hey, that's how we heard the monias, that is the white people, call the furry little critter when they first brought one to old Roche. We didn't have cats, too far north. The first time we saw one, it was not only an anomaly, it was evil incarnate. <laughs> Some whispered that the cat was complicit in Satan's necromancy. So mum reviled it. All she had to do was see its tail and her spine shuddered, which was why she added three S's at the end of its name. <laughs> not only did she sound like she was hissing at the creature, but the sacred letter also protected her, she insisted, from possible expulsion to machiscotique, the bad fire, which is our word for hell. Now, try, which means they separated or divorced, but literally means they threw each other away, the implication being into the garbage. <laughs> That's what happens to you divorcing Cree. <laughs> Okay, now this word, which, uh, which means pierce him as with a fork. <laughs> so ends up meaning he got pierced with a fork to his death. This is what happened, for example, to poor Jesus, our pronunciation of the name Jesus, when he was crucified. For neither crucified nor crucifixion exists as a word in creed. And here's the doozy. Paskisigal means gun. He went off like a gun, which is our way of saying he had an orgasm. <laughs> in English, you choke with shame when you experience this word. There's nothing more shameful in English than orgasm. In English, you choke with shame, then by way of penance, 
plunged into a litany of doleful mea culpas, and if you're Catholic, ten Hail Marys said, giddy up fast. <laughs> but in Cree, you scream. You flash and twist and writhe and churn. Every single syllable of this Algonquian language pops and sizzles with madcap energy, with sexual innuendo, and which is why it laughs and laughs so hard. Otisak, which means maggots, literally, but was our word for rice, because that's what the grain looked like to us when we first saw it. Even ordinary terms like those for iron, for pressing clothes, so squagan, which means that which slides. That's our word for iron. Or ketchup, a spatsigan, which means that which goes on top. Or canned fruit, which means those that float. Even those words cause gales of laughter. When was the last time the mention in English of ketchup? or can't peaches made you double over in hysterics. <laughs> Last, try something as dangerous as this. I'll say it in Cree, but leave the English translation to your imagination. That's our word for chastity belt. Ask a Cree friend to translate it for you, and you will die and go up to heaven. He sits all his books. Welcome to pleasure. Welcome to fun. Welcome to the trickster and his sense of humor. Welcome to our word of rampant insanity. Which means, boy, are you going to have one hell of a good time. The word came about, at least in Cree, as a result of the efforts of a female force of energy called Umama, which translates roughly to the Great Mother, a miraculous entity that eventually came to be known in English as Mother Earth. And she, with an acknowledgement of male contribution to the act of conception, gave birth first to the Thunderbird, who would protect the other creatures from the mysterious and destructive sea serpent, Kniepik. The Thunderbirds live in nests high in the mountains toward the setting sun, or so it is said. Clouds turn black and roll across the sky when the Thunderbirds are angry or are fighting with Kniepik. Often when it rains and flashes from the sky, the voices of the Thunderbirds cry out in anger. In Cree, we call them Ogittuak, which means they who make sound. Similar to Christian and classical mythology in which a male god talks while brandishing a thunderbolt. We humans are worms compared to these thunderbirds who came into the world long before human beings were even a glimmer in the eye of the goddess, that is, our dear Mother Earth. The second creature to come from the womb of Omama was Omagagi, the Ojibwe word for the lowly frog who has given sorcerer's powers to help control the insects of the world. The other animals often call upon Omogagi to help them when they are in trouble. And third born was a clown called in Cree, Wisagichak, and in English, the trickster. Omama gave Wisagichak many magical powers, among which was the ability to change himself into any shape he chose, especially when he had to save himself from danger. 
He was also an adventurer who liked to make mischief and play tricks, only to get himself hopelessly entangled in his own web of trouble. Sometimes he gets our people very angry. If you ever meet him, the elders say, offer him some tobacco and he may help you. Tobacco is one of the four sacred herbs, the others being sage, cedar, and sweetgrass. Omama's fourth child was Mahigan, the wolf. Because Mahigan is the little brother of Wisagichak, they often travel together in the forest having adventures. Wisagichak will sometimes turn himself into a little person and ride on the hairy back of his four-legged brother. Called Memegisuak in Cree and its sister language Ojibwe, these are little magic people, not unlike the Irish leprechaun, who live in low-lying bushes in the forest. Visible to humans only when they are in the throes of a vision induced by hunger, exhaustion, or some other crisis, they whisper and giggle at the folly of humankind. The rustle of leaves and low bushes in the breeze are their voices. In the olden days, before the arrival of electricity or motorized traffic or the monias, nature talked and people heard her and vice versa. Next came Amisk, the beaver. Amisk is greatly respected by our people. It is even said that the beavers were once humans in a different world, but evil befell them and they became animals. Whenever you kill a beaver, say the elders, you must throw his bones back into the pond as an offering to the spirit of the animal. Then fish, rock, grass, trees, and other animals eventually emerged from the womb of Omaama. And for eons, only they and the spirits inhabited the planet because Wisagichak, the trickster, had not yet invented the beast called human. Were the elders, the priests, and the shamans of Greek, Christian, and indigenous mythologies, that is, the mythology's inventors, got these stories is beyond the reach of human comprehension. Who was there, for example, to hear the king of the sky intone the immortal line, let there be light? By the same token, who was there to hear a red-nosed clown cackle, that's kicking life into the universe? Let there be laughter. Thompson Highway in Saskatoon with the third of the 2022 CBC Massey Lectures. In Saskatoon, Thompson spent a few hours at Persephone Theatre with a group of young Indigenous writers and actors talking about the history of Indigenous theatre in Canada and listening to what they had to say. Three young playwrights talked about why telling their own story was so important to them. Here are a few excerpts from what Amanda Trapp, Ezra Forrest, and Natanis Bear had to say. I think I got into theatre originally because I didn't want to tell my story. I wanted to tell other people's stories and hide from my story as much as possible. But then the more I began working in this field, eventually I came across this wall that I had to start being who I was and telling that story. And now I'm sort of taking down that wall and I'm finding that... um, it's really allowing me to connect with people in, in brand new ways and storytelling has always been how we've connected, whether it's telling an anecdote about ourselves or uh, reminiscing about you know shared favorite movies. I think I got into this to connect to people who I knew and didn't know and wanted to know and I think that is why I'm still doing it. I think that indigenous storytelling is an important way of keeping the home fire alive. I grew up on the road moving a lot, and 
something that kept me and my family close was telling stories to each other. And something that me and my friends do is tell each other creation stories when we're feeling low. And I feel like sharing our indigenous stories with the community and with the world is another way of reconciliation. And I believe that when we share our indigenous stories, we are doing ceremony with other people who are watching. And I feel like we're all family in that sense. Well, those are such good answers. <laughs> um, but uh, for me, it's kind of like a, just like a personal, personal thing. Like uh, if, I, if, I didn't, if I didn't write and I didn't draw, I don't think I'd uh, really have, I wouldn't have any like outlet or anything. So for me, it's like uh, purely for my own enjoyment and for my own, um, for my own outlet. Originally, I didn't want anyone to hear anything I wrote or anyone to look inside of uh, me or like look at me or anything. But with theater, <laughs> you just, you can't avoid that. And I'm very lucky to have had so many opportunities to tell stories in my very short career <laughs> so far. Um, but yeah, thanks. Indigenous writers Amanda Trapp Ezra Forrest, and Natanis Bear during a meeting with Thompson Highway in Saskatoon. Back now to the third of his 2022 CBC Massey Lectures on humour. Here's just one of many, many trickster stories. Then came a period when the waters of the lakes and the rivers began to rise and cover the forests. Many of the animals drowned. The birds and the animals were afraid that they had angered Umama. Some creatures said that this Mishipiju, the great animal, were digging in the bottom of a great lake and had opened the core of the world, which was full of water, causing Umama to bleed to her death. At last, only a small island remained with some birds and animals on it. But Wisagachak was on the island, and he helped the animals build a great canoe. Beavers cut down the trees and muskrats tied the poles together with roots, while the frogs packed mud between the poles to make the great vessel float. The birds built a huge nest in the canoe so everyone would be warm and comfortable, and Wisagatak built a roof over it. It rained, and the waters kept rising until the great brown canoe floated off on the ocean. The animals in Wisagatak rode the big canoe for many years over stormy seas and through strong winds. Finally, one day, the rain stopped and the great canoe rocked it gently once more as the winds stopped blowing. Wisagichak realized to his horror that he had forgotten to bring along a piece of the earth with which to recreate a new world. The only way to obtain it was to get someone to dive to the bottom of the ocean. Therefore, he tied a vine to Kichiamisk, the giant beaver, and told him to dive into the depths for some clay. After some time had passed, Wisagichak pulled the limp body of Kichi Amisk up into the great boat. To his disappointment, there was no clay. Next, he told Nigik, the otter, to dive for clay. But the same thing happened. The otter couldn't find the bottom and died. In the last attempt, Wisagichak sent Wachask, the muskrat, into the ocean. The vine went down and down. When he finally pulled the muskrat up, he discovered that Wachesk had drowned when in his tiny paws lay a piece of clay. 
Wisagi Chak was so excited that he immediately brought the three swimmers back to life. He then put the clay in a pot and boiled it. The clay expanded over the sides of the pot, falling into the great sea until the land was reformed. The next day, Wisagi Chak asked Gihon Giuge, the wolverine, to travel around the earth to find out how big it was. Pisim, the day's sun, had not been in the sky twice before Gihon Gonge returned. The earth is not big enough, said Wisagi Chak to all the animals. He boiled the pot again and more clay fell into the ocean. Again, the wolverine journeyed around the world. The second time, he returned puffing and tired, but Wisagi Chak was still not satisfied with his work. He boiled the clay pot for the third time, and then he sent off the wolverine to measure his work. Wolverine never returned. The world was big enough. This is far from the only story that intersects with Christian and other world mythologies. Meaning to say that it was a trickster, not a man named Noah, but a madcap clown who recreated the world after the flood. Here's the story of the trickster creating the season called Pipun, which means winter. It was not long after the world had been reformed and Wisagechak was meeting with all the animals of the earth to decide how long the snow should fall in the forests. How many moons should the winter have? He asked the creatures. A large bull moose with a great spread of horns replied, there should be as many moons of winter as there are hairs on my body. There was an immediate reaction from the rest of the animals. Some called the moose stupid and others just shook their heads in disbelief. Wisagechak replied, Surely there would be snow and coldness for a long time if I accepted your suggestion. Amisk, the beaver, was the next to speak. There should be as many moons of winter as there are scales on my tail. Wisagechak stated that this would still make the winter quite long and it would be hard for some of the animals to survive. The lowly frog, Omagagi, squeaked. There should be only as many moons as I have toes. All of the beasts told him to be quiet because Omagage was such a small creature. But Wisagatai decided that this would be a reasonable length for winter. Hence, it came about that the winter of the Creole Ojibwe lasts five months. The months of November, December, January, February, and March. The number of toes on Omagage's foot. Trickster exists in every single indigenous nation and every single indigenous language. From one end of the North American continent to the other. It all depends on the area and within the nation. Cree or Blackfoot or Anishinaabe or Mi'kmaq or Haida or Inu, it has a trickster in some form or other. The stories are interchangeable. Then again, all tricksters are interchangeable or universal. Because there exists but one God in monotheism, it naturally follows that there exists but one superhero in that collective subconscious. Offspring of the one God in that system, an immortal woman named Mary, thus making him another half-God, half-mortal, he displayed legendary feats of courage. His life story is so well-known the whole world over because yet one more definition of pathology is a story that your intellect is incapable of believing, but your spirit does with every single ounce of its being. That story is so powerful that an entire civilization has been built upon its bedrock, an entire planet given shape and substance by it. Still, 
Not once in the entire life story of this hero have I ever heard him laugh. A thousand pages of biographical detail have I read, but I have yet to hear him chuckle, guffaw, or chortle. Kind, intelligent, wise beyond his youthful years, courageous, capable of miracles, unheard of in the history of the human race, and capable, moreover, of suffering beyond all human suffering, when one thing he wasn't, a barrel of laughs. <laughs> Which is where he comes to a parting of ways with the indigenous superhero, Wisagichak. Our trickster is zany, he is crazy, psychedelic. He is explosive, maniacal, unpredictable, disruptive, irascible, profane, scatological, contrary. He is insane, ridiculous, funny, hysterical, cowardly, clumsy, dishonest, deceitful, self-serving, arrogant, the ultimate over-the-top madcap fool. Strictly speaking, he has no shape, no physical dimension, not as human, not as animal. He was, that is to say, never anthropomorphized by the people who pay him homage. Not until the late 20th century, with the emergence of the first generation of modern indigenous artists like Norval Morisot and the late dancer and choreographer Rene Highway, did this start happening. If the trickster was, until then, merely a spark or a flash of electrical energy that made nerves twitch or dreams time travel, and now he was, suddenly, a dash of paint faintly resembling a young man running, or in the case of the theater, jumping or dancing or floating over the highest skyscrapers in Canada. Figures from the sphere of polytheistic thought still resonate in his striking presence. Hermes, the strictster god, also known as the messenger god, who escorts souls to the land of the dead, and who is the son of Zeus, is the closest facsimile. But his persona is also decipherable in the figure of Dionysus, the god of wine. Then there is Pan, half goat, half man, pleasure-loving Sybarite, and resident of the garden of pleasure, a creature of the soil if ever there was one. And there is Priapus, the ultimate sex god. Even the love goddess Aphrodite holds her place in our great clown's soul, if only in the person of her bi-gendered progeny, with her brother Hermes, Hermaphroditus. All the cultures in the world have tricksters, from fools and court jesters in medieval European courts to lords of misrule and English Christmas festivities of times long past, abbots of reason in Scotland, to Pierrot and Harlequin in Italy's Commedia dell'arte, to Shakespeare's Puck and Touchstone and Feste in King Lear's Fool. And for that matter, America's Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, Red Skelton, Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, The Three Stooges, Lucille Ball, Carol Burnett, Lily Tomlin, Phyllis Diller, cartoon characters like Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse and Wild E. Coyote. <laughs> they are here and have always been here to remind us that if we don't laugh, we will die. Like the native trickster, and especially like the native trickster, they are here to remind us that the reason for existence on planet Earth is not to suffer, not to wallow in guilt, not to apologize for a crime we did not commit, but to have one blast of a time, to laugh ourselves to death. 
You're listening to the 2022 CBC Massey Lectures on Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name's Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. In the third lecture on humour, Thompson Highway invites us into the Cree world of scatological wild laughter. He invokes the trickster, a central figure in the mythologies of many Indigenous communities. We should experience the world, says trickster, through joy and laughter. Welcome to pleasure. Welcome to fun, says Thompson Highway. Welcome to the trickster and his sense of humour, Welcome to our world of rampant insanity. Here's Thompson Highway. Here is Iktomi, the trickster of the Lakota Nation, formerly known as Sioux of South Dakota. In the traditional stories, he appears as half man and half spider, a very foolish, hard to pin down shapeshifter. Iktomi was sitting on a log one fine morning, sunning himself when he saw Kitan the hawk flying about. Brother, cried Iktomi, give me a ride. The good-natured hawk let Iktomi climb on his back. Once he was up in the air, Iktomi enjoyed the flight and the fine view. But soon he was bored. Iktomi is always bored, unless he can play a joke on someone. He decided to have some fun at hawk's expense. Whenever they encountered another creature, an eagle, a buzzard, or a magpie, Iktomi made a gesture indicating that hawk was a stupid, no-account, good-for-nothing. Thus, he played Hawk for a fool. He thought Hawk could not see him doing that. He thought Hawks don't have eyes on the backs of their heads. What Iktomi forgot was that Hawk could see their shadow on the ground and could watch Iktomi making fun of him. I'll get even with that tricky Spider-Man, thought Hawk, and he suddenly turned over, now flying upside down. Iktomi lost his grip and fell through the air, landing inside a hollow tree. He was still trying to find his way out of the tree when it began to rain. It rained very hard. The tree was very dry. It soaked up the water like a sponge and swelled up. Poor Iktomi was being crushed to his death. In his pain and fear, he began to pray. Great spirit, why did you make me so smart that I always try to fool everybody? In the end, I am only fooling myself. Please save me. Have pity on me. Thus, Iktomi humbled himself. His former pride and wickedness made him feel very small, so small that he was able to crawl out of that tree. Sometimes a little humility and prayer can be a good thing. <laughs> this is just one of innumerable stories of the trickster from all the native nations across North America, stories as old as time that speak to us, adventures stealing the sun, stealing the summer, inventing fire ad infinitum. But central to the myth-making process is the interaction between the various levels of life involved in the narrative. 
In the polytheistic and monotheistic superstructures, there are but two of these levels, the level of divinity and the level of humanity. In the pantheistic model, which is the Aboriginal model, there is a third, the level of nature. And key to the narrative drive of each of these three superstructures is the manner in which one level intermingles with the other. Some of these interminglings are accomplished through overt encounters involving sex, involving biology, it might be said, some through visions that amount to illusions, optical or otherwise, daydreams, for instance, and some through actual nocturnal dreams. They have to meet and intermingle or our story would have no substance, would not be worth telling. Indeed, this meeting of minds, so to speak, is what makes the universal story so exciting, so filled with drama, so colorful, and so powerful. Without that dimension, life on Earth is left an experience bereft of color, pedestrian, boring, not worth living. In this way, life on Earth is imbued with magic. In the polytheistic universe, we have seen snippets of the manner in which the various gods and goddesses interact one with the other, frequently engendering, in the process, another generation of gods and goddesses. However, it is the interactions between gods and mortals, not gods and gods, that concerns us because it is from these encounters that a new breed of being is born, one who is half God and half mortal. In just such a manner is humankind elevated to a status divine, otherworldly, even eternal. In the polytheistic collective subconscious, Zeus, the king of the sky, is responsible for many examples of such interactions. To sate his limitless concupiscence, He would look down at the earth with a wandering eye and see attractive mortals gambling about in the garden of Arcadia and ravish them, a euphemism for rape. The upshot of these encounters was the conception of beings that were both God and mortal at the same time, meaning that they fit neatly into the classical definition of hero. Besides his adventure with Leda, the princess of Sparta, another well-known Zeus dalliance was with Danae, a mortal woman and princess of Argos, a city-state just north of Sparta. When her father, the king of Argos, heard a prophecy that a son of his daughter would one day kill him, he imprisoned her in a subterranean chamber with a roof that was open to the sky, the opening through which, disguised as, of all things, a shower of gold, unstoppable Zeus was able to gain access to the star-crossed princess. The result? The birth of the hero, Perseus, whose foremost claim to fame was the beheading with a sword of the snake-haired gorgon Medusa, from which wound sprang the winged horse Pegasus. Imagine a world where a horse has wings, where a woman has coiling stakes for hair, and eyes so deadly they turn onlookers to rock. The most famous result of a Zeus dalliance was classical mythology's greatest hero, a man-god named Hercules, famed for his courage and feats of strength. Slaying the many-headed sea monster, the Hydra, was only one in a long line of his exploits. Still impressive as they are, not one of these heroes was known for his laughter, his sense of humor, except perhaps for Odysseus, grandson of the mischievous god Hermes, and a legendary hero known for his cunning intellect. But overall, it would be difficult to see polytheism as a dream world full of gods who laugh. By sharp contrast, this is what we do with the native structure in our theater. A way out in the place unspecified, Trickster comes upon two coyotes preparing to have lunch. 
as he is hungry, as he always is, he insinuates himself into their company so he can eat some of their food. Wisagitak was always insinuating himself into people's companies so he could get something out of them. In fact, there was a verb based on his name, which means to ingratiate oneself or to pretend to be, or even, and more colloquially, to kiss ass. <laughs> Though, to be more literal, it means to be like Wisagitak. But to get back to the Tokoyoras eating lunch, as there is only so much food to go around, they don't want Wisagitak there. Offended, Trickster walks out to come up with an idea to trick them into letting him join them. He comes back. As it turns out, there are two trees standing some two meters behind the banquet table. Two things had to be noted about these trees. First, they are birch, so they are pliable. They bend easily. Second, they share a major root, so like conjoined twins, they are connected at the base. They stand leaning outward so that together they look like a tall V without leaves as the season is spring. Cousins, cousins, says Trickster, all syrupy sweet. Yes, say the coyote as they lips all greasy, chew on the drumstick of a juicy young ptarmigan, a sabartic wild chicken that is very tasty, especially when roasted on an open fire. Please give me some meat, says Trickster. We have a surprise for you over there, says one coyote to the unwanted visitor. You do, says Trickster. We do. Confirm the coyotes, then continue. It's hidden in the crotch of those two trees over there. All you have to do is reach in, and you will find a box. Then, as Wichagachak turns his back to walk to the trees with his mouth watering, the coyotes scoot off on tiptoe. Wichagachak kneels at the foot of the pair of trees and roots around with one hand, looking for his gift. Eventually, he is running around with such violence that he causes the trees to start swaying. The tow coyotes have made their way behind the trees, where they are squatting, invisible to Wisakichak, and maneuvering the tree so that they are swaying, all as the coyotes moan. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I'm not a good actor. <laughs> Meanwhile, Wisakichak is rolling around with such increasing effort and urging. Come on, box. I know you're in there. Come on, box. I know you're in there. So violent have the trickster's efforts become that the trees are now moaning. It hurts. It hurts. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Suddenly, <laughs> the two coyotes let go of their respective trees. Snap, and suddenly, <laughs> the two coyotes let go of their respective trees. Snap, and the trickster is caught in the trap. He yells, hey, as the coyotes calmly return to their meat. Thompson Highway with the third of the 2022 CBC Massey Lectures. Here's another excerpt from his meeting with young Indigenous theatre artists in Saskatoon, writers Amanda Trapp, Ezra Forrest, and Natanis Bear, talking about how being Indigenous shapes their work as writers. It never stops influencing you, even if you're not creating something that is explicitly Indigenous. It is always influencing how you make things and how you portray things and write things. For me, I stand right at the intersection of indigeneity and Europeanity. <laughs> uh, so a lot of my work is really centered around that because it's, it, for me right now, I'm trying to figure out what that means and how I live with those two things. And so 
all of my work has been very truthful to my own experience in that world, and I've learned that there's a real there's a real appetite for that too among other uh, half breeds and mixed folks as well, um, because it is a strange place to be, and so I do feel um, really honored that people identify with some of the things that I, I say and some of the things I write about with with having a foot in those two worlds. For me, I grew up with my culture. I'm very fortunate that way I grew up with my language around me. I grew up hearing stories from elders and from my family and from friends. And for me, that's all I know is indigeneity writing. And it is my dream to share that with others because it is a beautiful thing. I feel like writing is a different kind of love language for me. And I feel like when it comes to indigenous writing, is something that I'm very proud to be a part of. So I always grew up thinking that I wasn't native enough um, because, like, I'm full. I'm full Cree. Like my dad is. Uh, he's from up north, and then my mom is uh, Plains Cree. So like, I only know that way of life. But when, growing up, like, you know, like pieces of culture, but. Um, no language, like no Cree language spoken at home. So it's like my first language is just English. So I feel like everything that I write about is kind of just searching for what is what makes us native. And you know, like that's that's a big question, but for me, I'll always be kind of like searching for that answer. I mean, for me, I can't imagine talking about things or exploring things in the work that are so, um, you know, painful and hurtful without allowing the flip side of that to open up as well. It just, um, I think for audiences too, if you open the well of joy and humor and laughter, it allows us to deep into the other side of that even more. Laughter is one of the most beautiful sounds an audience can make. There's no feeling better than when something you wrote or something you said gets like a good earnest laugh from an audience and it's universal. It, it ties us together and I think uh, when we're writing things that maybe a lot of audience members don't immediate re immediately relate to, that might be challenging for some audiences, uh, it's a beautiful tool to help bring us all together in the room. In a show called The Sage, the Dancer, and the Fool, I foolishly adapted James Joyce's gigantic novel, Ulysses, the story of one day in the life of a man living in Dublin, Ireland, which is based in turn on Homer's Greek epic poem, The Odyssey. The play details one day in the life of a cream man living in the city of Toronto, except that it does it in triplicate. That is, the three titular characters play one person. The sage represents the intellect of the hero, the dancer his spirit, and the fool his body. The three shift in and out of each other with gesture, movement, and language in Cree and English, and when the latter takes the lead, that is the fool, he is Wisagijak, the Cree trickster. This play was an early effort in the technique of interweaving Greek mythology, Christian mythology, and North American indigenous mythology. One of my earliest plays, it was written in 1984. This was a type of massive social change in Native communities. Prior to 1960, Native people were mostly relegated to reserves and rural settings, mostly in the North and in the West. 
It wasn't until they got the right to vote in federal elections that they were free for the first time to leave those reserves and seek employment, advanced education, and liberty in general. When they arrived in the cities, they had to make certain adjustments to their lifestyle and thinking. For the first time in their lives, they had to change from circular thinking to straight-line thinking. And this was the voyage, as it were, that I tried to address with this play. The hero as a sage wakes up one morning and awestruck, sees that all is a straight line. Skyscrapers and cement, a far cry from the circle of nature at its most wondrous. Caribou moss and forest spruce and smoke from campfires that he grew up with in northern Manitoba. For the rest of the day, the hero in triplicate rides the storm that is the tension between these two ideas. After working hard all morning at a government office near Toronto's upscale Yorkville neighborhood, the sage goes for lunch at a restaurant and there meets his cyclops, the Witigu, the cannibal spirit of Cree myth, gorging himself on human flesh. All the while, sitting at one end of this very long table, the sage plays gorgeous atmospheric cocktail piano and a fool trickster recites an insane monologue about the consumerism in the city that is devouring the souls of entire societies. The effect was spectacular. By the end, the dancer, that is the hero spirit, is dancing a beautiful ballet to lyrical Chopinesque music that I wrote and played at the grand piano that sat at the foot of the tallest skyscraper in Canada, right there on Bay Street in downtown Toronto. It was the first time in history that the spirit of the native trickster had ever been seen in an urban environment. At that point in our history, the collective spirit of native people had made the transition from forest dweller to urban phenomenon, a social reality that we see continue today, from one day to the next to the next. To get here, the indigenous person is guided every step of the way by the central hero figure from our mythology. Thus, the trickster theater, art, and literature emerge into the world as first a spark, then a glimmer, then a flame, then a raging fire to guide us through thick and through thin, through crises such as illness, hunger, mental disorders such as depression, paranoia, fear, terror, terror at the prospect of death, terror at the prospect of being exterminated as a race. A mythology still in its early stages of development in 1492, a baby is still taking its first and very tentative steps, it was interrupted and grossly subverted. If the marriage between the sky god Zeus and his wife, the earth goddess Hera, was violent, then it was nothing in comparison to the moment when the one Christian god met Mother Earth on these shores and the aggression was total. He almost killed her, but didn't. The culture could have disappeared. The figure of the trickster could have disappeared forever. The culture came close to disappearing. The figure of the trickster came close to disappearing, but it didn't. It hung on by a hair, and hung on, and hung on, and hung on, it by one spark. And that is the spark that indigenous artists stoked to life. Not least of which did these trickster stories they tell make us laugh, and laughter is medicine. In fact, never before has laughter saved an entire race of people in quite this manner. A reason why these stories seem so simplistic, like children's stories or cute little folk tales, is that they are being told in English, which is too serious, too intellectual a language for them. 
As well, so much of this library, so to speak, has been destroyed by the church so that all that is left is cinders, scraps of this and scraps of that, scraps that our artists have been picking up and piecing back together. These stories come to us from the mists of time when magic was alive, a time when witchcraft flourished and magicians thrived. Humans were shapeshifters who had the ability to transform into beings part human, part animal. Dwarves, elves, and giants walked the land. Tales existed of humans with wings, horses with wings, of people rising from the dead and living forever. Then again, which is more believable? A human with wings? A horse with wings? Or a clown god trapped in the belly of a whale who talks? Still, this is the clown who lives at the core of our imaginations, our dreams, our collective subconscious. We lived in the boreal forest of the far north, and that forest was alive with magic. That land breathed, it talked. The relationship between humans, animals, and nature was real. It was intense. At a time when there was no postal system, no telephone, no electricity, no radio or television, and certainly no internet, what else was there to depend on for communication than dreams? When the first generation of native peoples emerged out of the forests of the far north, armed with university degrees and started picking up the pieces of a shattered culture, these children's stories that came to us from the furthest reaches of our collective racial memory were all we had to work with. That's all we artists had to hang on to, to build on, and we keep building, building, building. Egose, which means, so be it. Last, here's a story about the role of Wisagechak, Trickster's Cree incarnation in the, the coming into being of Dipskai Pisum, the night sun, our word for the moon. There are, to this day, a race of sky people living in the misty white clouds. Very little is known about these supernatural people because they are not even mentioned in our stories. But it is known that in the very long ago, there was no moon. Only Pisum, the day sun, crossed the heavens. Pisum was kindled and kept burning by one of the sky men who had a son and a daughter. As the golden leaves fell from the birch trees season after season, the sky father became very old. He told his children that one day he would disappear forever and they must look after the sun's fires, otherwise the people of the world would die. Finally, one day, the father returned to his wigwam high in the clouds and told the children he had finished his obligations to the great spirit. No longer would he need the sun's fires, and he was leaving forever. The children were very sad. They talked of his goodness and his kind ways during the black of the night. But soon it was morning, and the time for the first of the Pisum to be set alight. I will set Pisum aflame, said the young girl. No, I am the man of this family now, and it is my privilege and the honor to look after the sun's flames, said the boy. They could not agree. And soon they were fighting, rolling in the clouds, pulling one another's hair. The time to light the sun's fires came and passed. Below, on the earth, people and animals stared into the black sky, waiting for Pisum to send his warm light to them. They were frightened because they knew they could not live without the sun. Wisagachak was traveling in the forest and he realized something was wrong. The sky people were not looking after the sun. Shape-shifting into the form of Beneisi, he flew into the floating clouds to see what had happened. He found the children fighting. Angrily, he said, stupid children, 
Why are you fighting like starving wolves? Why are you not kindling the fires of peace? Um, our father has left us, great Visagatak, and I am to care for peace, um, the girl said quickly. And you quarrel and fight while there is blackness on the earth below? How foolish, sky children, you must be punished. Then the great Visagatak told the sky children their fates. You, sky men, shall tend the fire of peace until the end of time. You, sky woman, will look after another eternal fire in the heavens. It will burn only in the darkness of the night and will be very difficult to keep aflame, so you will have to work hard to keep it from dying out. Never again will the two of you be together, but a few days of the year you will cross the blueness together and be able to see each other, if from a distance. And this is how Tipskai Pisum came to the world. The night sun has guided many a lonely hunter through the dark forest, as it has us, the indigenous artists, for it's been a dark and lonely road, a frightening one, filled with pitfalls that almost killed us, as indeed it did do to some of us. All the more reason then to bring on the clown, bring on the language, the stories that saved laughter for the pleasure of generations past, present, and future. Iwani yisitan, iwani yisiyatimuyan, and that's it. Listening to On Humor, the third of the 2022 CBC Massey Lectures, Laughing with the Trickster, on Sex, Death, and Accordions by Thompson Highway. Also on the program, Indigenous writers Amanda Trapp, Ezra Forrest, and Natanis Bear, recorded at a symposium with Thompson Highway at Persephone Theatre in Saskatoon. Our thanks to all of them. The entire lecture series will be available on our website, cbc.ca slash Masseys, and you can also download the podcast from our podcast page. Your local bookseller will have the book version of the lectures, Laughing with the Trickster on Sex, Death, and Accordions, published by House of Anansi Press. That music you're listening to, by the way, is written by Thompson Highway. It's from his latest album, Cree Country which, as the title suggests, is a collection of country music-styled songs sung in Cree by Patricia Cano. Cree Country is only available on Spotify. Our partners in the Massey Lecture Series are Massey College at the University of Toronto and House of Anansi Press. The Massey Lecture Series is produced by Philip Coulter. Online production by Althea Madison. Ben Shannon, Sinisha Jolich, and Paul Gorbold. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of the Massey Lectures and Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayad. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.